As we've been studying through the book of James, uh, we've noted over and over that James, the brother of Jesus, is stressing throughout his letter how real faith is to be lived out. James has very little tolerance for those who claim to have faith but are not living it out in their everyday life. His book is a very practical book, and it's written to believers, lest you should be tempted tonight to say this must be for unbelievers. It's written to believers. And we have seen that James reminds his readers over and over again that faith without works or faith without action is dead. And then he goes on to clearly, throughout the pages that we've been studying, to paint a picture of what true faith is lived out, really looks like. He fleshes it out for us in his letter. James understands and he wants us to understand that it is futile to claim that you have faith but then deny it with your actions. That's just giving God lip service. The reality is that my faith is invisible to those around me. The only evidence of my faith is not by what I'm saying. I can claim to have faith, but the only evidence of that faith is how I live it out in my day-to-day -day life. It's not how many times I go to church during the week. It's not even how much time I spend reading my Bible or praying. It's not about perfect attendance in Bible study or never missing a church meeting. Faith without works, without action is dead. My actions and the way I live my day-to-day -day life makes my faith visible to those around me. And it gives testimony to the power of God at work in my life. And so James is giving us guidelines. He's giving us guidance. He's showing us in the pages of his letter what real faith lived out looks like. Last week we talked about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I'm not sure about that, but I promise you it's in there somewhere where it talks about this world that Satan is the god of this world. Do you understand that? This world God, Satan is the God of this world. And so when we live according to worldly wisdom, whose wisdom are we following? And so heavenly wisdom or wisdom from above is really what we want to aim at. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about how um, worldly wisdom really reeks of jealousy and envy and selfish ambition and vain conceit. But heavenly wisdom is really, it centers on purity and peace and gentleness and, and it's untainted by hypocrisy. It's not about play acting and, and, and it has good fruit. It produces good fruits in our life. And James ended uh, the, the chapter that we looked at last week by saying that peace, those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace. And, he will, and that person will reap a harvest of goodness in their life. He was talking to us about how worldly wisdom has chaos and disorder at, at every turn. That, that if your life is chaotic and is full of confusion and disorder, look at it and examine and ask yourself, are you living according to God's ways or to the world's ways? And remember that the world's ways are under the rule of Satan. 
I'm sorry, I can't water that down or change it for you. But he says, if you are living according to God's ways, you will be a peacemaker and you will sow seeds of peace and you will produce a harvest of righteousness, of right living before God. And that's how we ended last week's teaching. And now remember, this is a letter. It was never meant to be separated by chapters. It was one letter written by James to, to the church. And so this next section that we, were, we are about to um, come into, it continues off of that peacemaker uh, verse. It's just another thought James is adding to it. And keep in mind that James has been talking to us about improper speech, about the tongue, and how it holds the power of life and death. And he's talking to the church. And now he's going to talk about conflicts and arguing and fighting and wars. And he's basically going to say, this is behavior that we should expect from the world, but we should not expect it from the church. It's not part of the godly wisdom that he talked about in chapter 3. In verse 1, we will see James drawing an outright contrast to the atmosphere of peace that he ended chapter 3 in. We're called to be peacemakers, and an atmosphere of peace is vital for righteousness, for right living before God. So if we're living in conflict and in dissension and division, that's an atmosphere of chaos. And every evil thing will be present there. But peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness, he says. The wars and the fighting that James is about to talk to us about are in direct contrast to that peace he referenced. That peace that comes from walking according to God's ways and sowing righteousness or right living in everything we do. Pleasing God in everything that we do. That should be our aim. Are we ever going to hit it 100%? No, but let's start aiming for it. And so James chapter 4, we're going to look at this chapter in its entirety. And I want you to follow along in your Bibles as I teach. But as I read this to you, I'm going to read from the voice. And so I just want you to listen to me. Don't follow along as I read, but, but listen. And then we'll follow uh, along uh, piece by piece, verse by verse as I teach through this chapter. We're going to do the whole chapter tonight because I believe it's all in context. And I don't want to just pick bits and pieces. But listen carefully as I read. Where do you think your fighting and endless conflicts come from? Don't you think that they originate in the constant pursuit of gratification that rages inside each of you like an uncontrolled militia? You crave something that you do not possess, so you murder to get it. You desire the things you cannot earn, so you sue others and fight for what you want. You do not have because you've chosen not to ask. And when you do ask, you still do not get what you want because your motives are all wrong, because you continually focus on self-indulgence. You are adulterers. Don't you know that making friends with this corrupt world order is open aggression towards God? So anyone who aligns himself with this bogus world system is declaring war against the one true God. 
Do you think that it is empty rhetoric when the scriptures say the spirit that lives in us is addicted to envy and jealousy? You may think that the situation is hopeless, but God gives more grace. Somebody say, more grace. God gives more grace when we turn away from our own interests. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he pours out grace on the humble. So submit yourselves to the one true God and fight against the devil and his schemes. If you do, he will run away in failure. Come close to the one true God and he will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you have dirtied them in sin. Cleanse your heart, because your mind has split down the middle. Your love for God on one side, and your selfish pursuits on the other. Now is the time to lament, to grieve, and to cry. Dissolve your laughter into sobbing, and exchange your joy for depression. Lay yourself bare, face down to the ground in humility before the Lord, and He will lift your head so you can stand tall. My brothers and sisters, do not assault each other with criticism. If you decide your job is to accuse and judge another believer, then you are a self-appointed critic and judge of the law. If so, then you are no longer a doer of the law and subject to its rule. You stand over it as judge. Know this. There is one who stands supreme as judge and lawgiver. He alone is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to step in and try to judge another? Listen carefully. Those of you who make your plans and say we are traveling to this city in the next few days, we'll stay there for one year while our business explodes and revenue is up. The reality is you have no idea where your life will take you tomorrow. You are like a mist that appears one moment and then vanishes another. It would be best to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live long enough and we will hope to do this project or pursue that dream. But your current speech indicates an arrogance that does not acknowledge the one who controls the universe. And this kind of big talking is the epitome of evil. So if you know the right way to live and ignore it, it is sin, plain and simple. So good. That not so good. I just love it. Where do you think your fighting and endless conflict come from? If you have your Bibles, open them to that James chapter 4. And now we will go piece by piece through that chapter. James begins by saying, where do wars and fights come from? Or as the, the voice said, where do the fightings and the quarrels among you come from? What causes those battles? What causes the struggles and the clashes with other people in our lives? Why do we get so irritable and testy? Why do we argue and dispute with one another and say hateful, unkind things? Why do we act impatiently and stir up dissension and cause division? Why do we have so many disagreements over irrelevant, silly things that really don't matter in light of eternity? What is the true source, James is asking, of conflict in our lives? 
And then he gives us the answer, and I'll give you a hint. It's not about another person. It's about us. And it's time that we take an honest look at our lives and our heart motivation. Yes, you can stay where you are and never change the rest of your life, and you are saved by grace, and you will go to heaven. But I'm going to tell you, the, the Word of God says that we have to leave those elementary principles and press on to maturity and grow up and get strong in our faith. And that's what my goal on Monday nights is for you. That's what my goal is in my own life. The Word of God challenges me. I want to be challenged by it. I want to be challenged to change. And James does that better than any other writer of the gospel, of, of the word of God, I believe. And so as you hear James say this and as you hear me begin to talk about it, you might, be, you might want to call, cry foul or, or refute what James is saying. You might respond, what causes these quarrels and fightings among us? Let me tell you, Rhea, it's all about my husband. That's what causes it. If he would change, I wouldn't have any reason to fight and argue. Some of you might be sitting there saying, Rhea, if you only knew the person that I work with and how difficult she is, let me just tell you what, she is the, she is the one, the onus is on her. If she would change, then I would not want to fight and quarrel and I would not be so irritable. You might be saying, I got some difficult children at home and life is hard and they push my buttons, Rhea, and, and they set me off and, and it's their fault. They're the ones that cause the fighting and the quarreling in our house and, and I'm just responding to what they're doing. It's not me. The problem is not me. And we want to point the finger and we want to blame somebody else but James wants us to see that the conflict around us is only symptomatic of something deeper going on in our own heart. It's not something we can transfer onto another or innocently assign blame and point the finger. It's an internal issue. The battle is not against the other person. The battle is in us. I have this thing on my back right here that for the past year I have this burning sensation in my back and I'm always aware that it's there and, and I went to the doctor, I just, I got, uh, it makes me irritable because it's always there and it's always like pushing my buttons and so I went to the doctor and I said, you know, I have this problem right here, can you take some x-rays and can you tell me what this thing is right there in my back and and, and I, the doctor that I go to, she's been my doctor forever, and she said, oh, Rhea, the problem is not here. The problem is in your neck. You have some vertebrae that are, you have some, some um, vertebrae that have arthritis in it, and they have bone spurs growing on them, and they're pressing on a nerve, and that's really, uh, it's really from your neck. The problem is in your neck. It's just manifesting in your side. And I was like, you're crazy. This is my neck. Look at my neck. My neck is fine. There's no problem at all with my neck. Go back to med school. The problem is in my side. And she say, Rhea, this has nothing to do with your side. That's how the problem is manifesting, but the real problem is someplace different. And as I was reading through this this week, I couldn't help but think about that because, you see, that's what we do. We, we think the problem is with others. 
But that's just the way it's manifesting in your life. The problem is someplace else. It's in us. It's an internal problem. And I really don't like that. I, I want to blame my problem on somebody else. I, I, I want, it's, it's, it's much easier to just point the finger and I, I just, I don't want to have to have any responsibility here and I don't like this chapter, James. But if we continually live in conflict, if our lives are constantly in upheaval and nothing is changing, if we're living in chaos and disruption often because of conflicts and fighting and battles, at some point we have to say, I'm willing to look at this. I'm willing to look at this. So now let's look again what James says. Where do fightings and wars come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. And where does it come from, James says? Our own desires, our own pleasures. Some of your, your, your Bibles say, some translations will say your own lusts. And that word for, for desire or pleasure there, it's where we get our English word, hedonism. Does anybody know what hedonism is. The definition of hedonism is the desire to please my own self, the desire to please my own flesh. It's selfishness. It's a commitment to self. It's a desire to please self, moi, above all others. My own selfish desires for pleasure and comfort cause the wars and the battles within me. I can't put it on somebody else. You see, I want, I, I want something and I can't have it. And, and because I can't have it and I can't manipulate you to get it, I get angry and I get irritable and you don't give me what I want. And so I start a fight or a battle. And it goes against that peaceful atmosphere that James says comes when we follow the word of God. Alistair Big gives a great definition of the word desire. He said it's the internal selfish orientation towards that which is apart from God and is distinct from him. James is saying the root of every argument at the core of every quarrel is really our own selfish desire. A desire for our own way, a desire for our own pleasure, a desire for our own comfort, a desire to not hurt, a desire to be free from garbage. It is our own selfish desire instead of desiring the things of God. He says those desires war within us. And that word for war there that James chose is an actual military term. It's the war against the flesh and the spirit that's at war within us all the time. The Bible says that we are in a war. Do you understand that? That no civilian signs up for, for, for service. That you've got a commanding officer and we are in a war. The war against flesh and the spirit. But James uses a military term to describe the war against our desires warring against our members. And uh, I, I really like, there was a commentator I read. He has, a, he has a commentary on James. His name is Edmund Hebert. And I just want to read you what he says about that battle term because it was so profound. I couldn't even change. I don't want to change it. I want to read it just like he says it. 
He says, James uses battle imaging, imagery in describing these pleasures as engaged in constant warfare. The phrase, that battle, depicts these pleasures as soldiers carrying on a military campaign aimed at securing the satisfaction of our cravings. This self-centered, pleasure-seeking activity stands over against their proper submission to God. Alfred Plummer adds, the ultimate choice in life lies between pleasing oneself and pleasing God. That is really the war that's going on inside of me. The decision to please myself or to please God. Every single day, I encounter that battleground. Will I please Rhea or will I please God? It's a choice. I've said before you, life and death, God says, choose. Choose life, Rhea. Choose life. It's a war. Peter agrees with James. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, he's talking again to believers. I beg you, that's a strong word, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, fleshly desires, hedonism, the desire to please self, that war against the soul. What is the soul? Our mind, our will, our emotions, our well-being. Do you know that the, the fleshly lusts war against the soul? And Peter says, abstain from them, get rid of them, don't. Don't indulge in them. Don't be lured away, James says in James chapter 1. He says, we are lured away and enticed by our own desires. You can't blame it on Satan. It's our own desires that lure us away and entice us. Galatians 5 talks about the desires of the flesh being opposed to the, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are opposed to the flesh. They're at war with one another. We know the good we should do, but we don't do it. And, and he says that here are, the, here are the fruit of the flesh. And then he lists all of this ugly stuff that we all do every single day. And then he says, but here is the fruit of the Spirit. So when you walk according to, to, to the Spirit, here's the fruit that's going to come off your life. But when you walk according to the flesh, here's the yucky stuff that's going to come off your life. You choose. Will I please self and indulge my flesh or will I live to please God? We have to learn to manage our interior life. The flesh and the spirit are in conflict with one another. Those of us who are here tonight and we have invited Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, that means he's our master. That means he's supreme over all. That means that we have made him Lord of our life, that we have enthroned him uh, on the throne of our life as master. But when we yield to those things and indulge and gratify our flesh, when we don't submit to God and his ways and his authority, instead we do what pleases us and pleases our flesh, we take him off the throne and we put self there instead. What are you enthroning in your life? Verse Peter 3.15, I love this, it says, but in your hearts, in your hearts, your mind, your will, your emotions, in your hearts, set Christ apart as holy. Within you, among you, he says, there's fighting and battling, and you have got to make sure that you're setting Christ apart as holy, that you are making him Lord and master. You've given him lordship 
over your desires, over your passions. Live it out. Walk it out. So look at those verses again. Where do those wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war within your members? And here's what I want you to see. You lust and you do not have. You murder and, and covet and cannot obtain. Some of you say, well, Rhea, that's a little harsh word. Uh, I don't murder anybody. Well, James is just using figurative language there. It's a hyperbole. He's, he's just drawing a picture for you. If you read Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 through 22 in the message, Jesus says this. I like it in the message. It says, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or a sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. James says, what's causing the fighting and the battle of battles within you? Do they not come from your own desires that war against your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder. You use your words to tear somebody down instead of build them up. You say, well, Rhea, I, I don't have a vicious temper. I don't have a mouth like you have. I don't murder with my words. Okay, can I just tell you this? This week I was thinking about this, and, and I, was, I was studying about anger, and I came across this counselor. I think his name was Rick Thomas, but don't quote me on this. But he had this incredible chart that I just loved, and, and he had two types of anger. He had my kind of anger, loud verbal anger, and then he had Leslie's kind of anger, quiet, reserved anger. And, and he had both spectrums. Over here he had murder, and over here he had murder. And I'm like, how can that be? I can see that Rhea, you know, you have verbal abuse, you have nasty, unkind words being thrown, you have hate, you have bitterness, you have nasty mouth, you have, you have unkind things being, I, I understand how that can murder somebody, but how does this over here quiet, reserved, internalized, passive-aggressive anger hurt somebody. And he says, have you ever given somebody the silent treatment? Have you ever given somebody the cold shoulder? Have you ever just ignored somebody? I'll show you. See, I don't do that. I don't ignore anybody. I, I will show them with my mouth. I, I can't do that silent treatment stuff because I can't keep quiet long enough to do it. But I know some people who are super good at this. And, and what he says is that when you give somebody the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, what you say is, I'm just pretending you're dead. You're nothing to me. I'm ignoring you and pretending you're not even there. It's like you're dead to me. And he said both extremes are wrong. Now, I want you to think about both sides. I wish I had a whiteboard that I could draw it for you. But, but he said things, you know, loud, loud anger is unkind words, it's curse words, it's profanity, it's yelling, it's rage, it's hateful, destructive words. Some of you have ideas of somebody in your life who has those kind of things. They're nasty. But then the silent anger, here, let me just list some of them and see if, if you can find yourself. Stubbornness, ignoring, control, Manipulation, negativity, 
cold shoulder, gossip, sighing under your breath, huffing, impatience, bitterness, cynicism, being critical, belittling somebody, apathetic, arrogant, aloof, withdrawn. He says that's all anger that leads to murder. So we kind of even ground. He said you murder and you covet. Anybody know what the word covet means? It really goes a little bit deeper than just what somebody else has. It's that you just have a desire for something. You have a desire for something. So let's just talk about that. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you war. Let me flesh it out for you. You covet compliments, and you get silence and nobody notices you, so you fight war. You covet appreciation, but nobody seems grateful, so you get, you get irritable and grouchy. You covet repentance, but they don't see the wrong they've done, and so you hold a grudge. You covet attention, but he's too busy and has other plans, so you give him the silent treatment. You covet alone time, but everybody at your house needs something from you. And don't they understand? And so you get louder to make sure they understand. You covet respect, but she plows right over you. And so you withdraw from her because she's just not safe. You covet recognition, and you work really hard to get it. No one ever seems to notice and give you the pat on the back that you need. And so you work harder and you get more and more bitter because you're working hard and don't get the recognition. You covet kindness. That's not too much to ask, but they're too broken to give it. And so you put a wall up against them and you just mistreat them the same way they mistreat you. You covet acceptance and to be included in a group, but they overlook you, and so you go gossip about them and tear them down because they made you feel like you were torn down. You covet a day off and a much-needed break, and no one in your house lifts a finger to help, and nobody notices you're doing everything, and so you get grouchy and unkind, and you raise your voice just a little bit to make sure everybody knows. You covet his full attention, and to be the wife of his dreams, but he's too busy to notice, and so you get angry enough to go find somebody else who will meet those needs. What causes the fights and the wars among you? Do they not come from your own selfish desires? That war within you, you covet but you can't have, and so you war and you battle. Yet you do not have because you don't ask. And I don't think that that means, God, could I have this and this and this and this? I think it means, God, I'm trying to get from somebody else what only you can give me. I'm asking the wrong person 
My expectations are being, uh, they're, they're, they're failing to meet my expectations because my expectation should never have been in them to begin with. You see, if my expectation is not in you, you don't have the power to make me angry. You don't have the power to disappoint me. You don't have the power to, to, to make me rage and get angry and withdrawn and fight and battle. I'm not wasting my time with that anymore because I don't have, because I don't ask God to meet every need. I have according to his riches in glory. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives, that you might spend it on your what? Pleasures, your selfish desires, your hedonism, because it's all about me. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So could you just meet every need I have? Could you just be everything I need you to be? And when you're not, I'm going to make sure you know it. That's the place that only God should have in our life. He says, when you ask, you ask to miss with the wrong motives. It's bothered me for the last two weeks. I've been saying to the Lord, every time I go to him in prayer, I've been stopping and saying, what is the real motive behind this? I was talking, may I say this? Are you sure? I, I was talking to um, Leslie and Don, and uh, it, Don has lost his job. You can pray for him. Um, if I've ever known more generous, giving, faithful people, it's them. They give and they give and they give and they give and they look for nothing in return, and now they're without a job. And, and I'm telling you, they run this Bible study, and if you can do anything for them, would you pray? But we were talking about, I was talking to Leslie and Don, and, 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 and I said, you know, in a situation like this, what we pray for is give me a job, give me a job, give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. And if you don't give me a job, I'm angry with you because I serve you. And, I, and, and not that I'm not saying they're like this. I was just beating them to the, to the point. I was just making sure that we had it all out there on the table. And I, I said, what happens is the temptation to get bitter with God because he's not coming through in the time frame that we want him to come through is there. So just guard your heart that that does not happen. And I said, because here is the truth. More than God wants to give you a job, because that's easy. That's a piece of cake. He can do that tomorrow. I said, he is far more concerned with what he's forming and doing within you right now. And that's hard when you're without a job. There's something that happened in my life several years ago and I kept asking the Lord to fix it and I couldn't understand why he didn't fix it. To me, it was just pretty black and white. This needs fixed bad. And, and why are you not doing it? And, and, and I, the, every, you need to fix that. That needs fixed. It's wrong. With a capital W wrong. But he didn't fix it. And then one day I said to him, why are you not fixing this? And he said, because I'm fixing you. I'm using it to fix you. I'm using it to, I am far more concerned about your holiness than I am your happiness, Rhea. And see, that's what we do. We ask with the wrong motives. See, I wanted him to fix that because I wanted to spend it on my own pleasure. Can you just make me comfortable? Because this hurts like the dickens. 
I'm asking with the wrong motive because he wasn't concerned about my comfort because he is the comforter. He doesn't have to fix my situation to comfort me. He wants to comfort it without fixing it so I know it was him. He wants to give Don and, and Leslie, he wants to form in them what he's forming because a job would be easy to fix. He wants them to know he is the provider. He is all they need. Do you see, we ask with the wrong motives that we might spend them on our pleasure because our pleasure is all about our comfort. Can you fix my husband because I'm pretty miserable right now? No, I want to fix you so that even with a miserable husband, you can be sweet and kind and loving. That's testimony to what I can do. Can you fix my boss and give me a new job because every day is misery? No, I'd rather fix you. You ask, and you don't have because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasure. It's so interesting, that word spend there. I've been studying the prodigal son. The Bible says that he went to the father, and he asked for his inheritance, and you know the story. He went, and the word says that he squandered his inheritance and ended up in the pig pen, and that word squandered is the same word as spend here. Are we squandering that we might spend it on our pleasures? Are we wasting it? Verse 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And then he says, adulterers and adulteresses. That's how he starts that. Adulterers and adulteresses. I like today's Living Bible. It says, you are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Don't you realize that making friends with God's enemies, the evil, pleasure of the, wor the evil pleasures of this world, makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy the evil pleasure of the unsaved world, you cannot also be a friend of God. I want you to notice the, the picture he's drawing here. He's using a term that we know for a marriage term, adulterers. He's calling us adulterers and adulteresses. I don't like that. <clears throat> but, but you know, it works the same way as it does, adultery does in a marriage. For instance, I, I pledge my, my love to Dave. I'm devoted to him. I made a vow to, to be his wife forever and be loyal to him forever. When I came to Jesus... I took a vow. I said, Lord, I give you my life. I pledge my love to you. I commit my life to you. I'm going to be loyal to you, devoted to you, okay? And just like, when, 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 let's just say uh, with my marriage to Dave, you know, I've been married to him a long time. We are getting old, and, and uh, you, know, you know how that goes. You kind of, uh, in this world, you go out and you think, hmm, I wonder if I could, do better because that's what enticement does adulterers and adulteresses get enticed into unfaithfulness 
James says, you get enticed and lured away by your own selfish desires. And you start looking at your spouse a little different. And you start thinking, I think I deserve a little bit better than that. I wonder what else is out here. I'm really kind of bored here. And it's kind of exciting out here. And what else can I do? And what else can I indulge in? And, what? and, and they paid attention to me. And I wasn't really getting attention. And then you start spending more and more time flirting with that person and less and less time investing in this relationship. And then we wonder, we wonder why we feel justified and why this looks good because we're putting all our energy in that and no energy in this. And then we start feeling entitled and that entitlement leads us down the wrong road. And before we know it, the Bible says her foot leads to the grave. Death will come. And you see, that's what we do to God. We say, God, you know what? I wonder what else is out there. I feel like you're, feel like you're confining me here a little bit. And my friends are all having fun. And, and they're all indulging. And, you know, it's not hurting them. And I love you. Love you, God. I'm just going to flirt. See, that's what friendship with the world is. It means to flirt with the world. I'm just going to be right back, God. I just want to flirt. I want to feel alive again. This is way too constraining, and you're a bit boring. Be right back. I just want to flirt a little bit. I want to indulge a little bit. I'm entitled I'm entitled. You're such a foo-foo. You don't want me to have any fun. I'm just going to indulge a little bit. That's what we do. That's what we do. And we get in so deep. You see, in an affair, what always strikes me about an affair, do you know what strikes me about men and women who have affairs? Because we counsel a lot of them. The person they have the affair with. I'm like, oh, baby, if you're going to lose everything, if you're going to risk everything, if you're going to risk your reputation, if you're going to risk your career, if you're going to risk your testimony, if you're going to risk your marriage, your money, your children, your whole life, if you're going to risk it, make it count. What are you doing with her? What are you doing with him? He's a deadbeat dad to begin. What in the world is wrong with you? But see, that's what we do. We get lured away and enticed. And they start looking good because we're so blinded. And we got something sitting at home so much better. But we've been enticed by our own sinful desires and that's what we do to god he's so much better than anything this world has to offer but you see what the enemy does oh come on tasty it is tasty everybody else is doing it you have a right god will forgive you come on just have fun not going to hurt. 
And yet we've pledged our loyalty. We've, we've pledged our faithfulness to him. I don't know if anybody here has ever been cheated on, but I'm telling you what, it does not tickle. It hurts to the core of your being to be betrayed, to be cheated on, to have somebody be unfaithful to you. And yet that is what we do to God every single day. We pledge our loyalty to him. We pledge our faithfulness to him. We say, God, I'm, I am here. I'm committed to you. And then we say, as soon as I go over here and do this, I got this pleasure that's enticing me. Adulteresses and adulteresses, do you not know friendship with God? Well, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud. I want you to see he doesn't oppose the person he opposes the character trait. Remember, 2 Corinthians identifies Satan as the god of this world. The world is under the rule of the devil, and everything he does opposes the will of God. And so when we act according to his ways and the ways of the world, we are acting in opposition to God's word, in opposition to the Holy Spirit. We oppose the spirit instead of opposing the devil. We resist the spirit instead of resisting the devil. And the Bible says... Do you not know that the spirit within you is given to envy and to jealousy? You see, we quote that scripture, and it's been, there's such mixed commentators have mixed views on it. Some people will say that it's God is jealous for us. He is jealous for me. And I think it could be. It says, do you not know that scripture says? There's no scripture that says what it says there. And so there's a lot of controversy around that. So it could be that God is jealous for us. But you know, I like the way, the reason I read it from the voice is because I like the way it says, do you not know, and let me just get it again so I can read it to you um, correctly. It says, do you not know that the spirit that lives in us is addicted to envy and jealousy? You may think that the situation is hopeless, but God gives more grace when we turn away from our own interests. That we have a fleshly nature within us that is given to envy and to coveting and to jealousy and to, to outbursts of anger and to all of those things. That's our fleshly nature inside of us. But God, when we turn away from that, gives more grace to us. What is grace? I preach it to you constantly. God's enabling power. This week, God said to me, I was reading through my Bible, and I saw um, in the, 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 subhead, the chapter headings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it said, the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark. Okay? What's the word gospel mean? Good news. What is the good news? The good news is the person and the work of Jesus Christ for us. That's the good news, is it not? That, what, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man cometh unto the Father except by him. He is the way. His ways are right. He is the truth. Everything he says is truth. And he is the life. There is no other way to life. I promise you, I've looked. There is no other way to life than through him. And this week the Lord said to me, Rhea, sometimes you come to me with another gospel. 
Paul says, I think it was Paul says, if anyone comes to you with another gospel that stands in opposition to what I say, let him be accursed. Let him feel it. Let him feel the effects of it. Huh. Rhea, sometimes you come to me with the gospel according to Rhea. The good news according to Rhea, that there's another way, another truth, and another, another way to life. You say, God, I, I know that, that you are, Jesus, I know that you are the way, and that you say, this Bible is the way. It's the way to live. But I just, I have another way. I think this would work. Could you bless it? And I know that you say this is the truth, but Jesus, I got some truth for you. This person did this and this and this to me, and that's truth, and yet you tell me this is the way to deal with that? Uh-uh, don't like it. I have another way. And huh, I got some, I got to tell you, for me to have life, you need to deal with them. That's the gospel according to Rhea. And he says, the world and its pleasures, your desires, your selfish desires, Rhea, they pass away. They lead to death. But the, word, the person who does the will of the Lord, what's the, what's the rest of that scripture? Somebody tell me. Lives forever. That's not lives forever in heaven. Eternal life. We think eternal life is when we get to heaven, right? We think eternal life starts, my friend Carol died this week, and, and, and I just had to, I, I, I was I got news, I was pulling into Panera as I got the news she died, and all of a sudden, my, I just, my heart just was full of pain. It just mourned. And, and all of a sudden, the sun just like got super bright in the parking lot, and I actually started to laugh. And I was like, Lord, how can I mourn? Because she took one last breath in this world, and she stepped into the next one and started living like she has never lived before. How can I possibly mourn that? You see, that's what we think eternal life is. We think it happens when we step into eternity. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. If you look up that word, it means life that doesn't cease. Life that begins the day I commit my life to him and doesn't ever cease from that day forward. Why are we not living that? Because he who does the will of the Lord lives forever. When I do the fleshly desires and the will of the world, I perish. I have this feeling of death and confusion and chaos in my life doesn't mean I perish and stop breathing. I just don't have that perpetual, ongoing, divine life flowing through me. That's so good. So good. So the Bible says, because that, because God resists the proud, he opposes those who think they know the better way and resist his Holy Spirit. So he'll oppose them. He'll make you miserable. But he gives grace, his empowering presence to the humble. I was saying to somebody, they were talking to me on Sunday night about their husband and how he had done some things that really ticked them off and they got angry with him and they were kind of miserable. And I said, how about you go home and apologize? And she wasn't real sure that she liked that idea. 
And I said, God will give grace to the humble. Because you're miserable right now. And when you humble yourself under his word, and no matter whether your husband deserves it or not, you respect and honor him and bless the socks off of him. You'll get the grace, the empowering presence of God to do that. But he waits for the yield. He waits for you to do the right thing, to humble yourself and yield. And then, boom, the grace to do it is there. We'll quickly finish this. Therefore, submit, and that word submit means to fall under authority. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. We cannot resist the devil successfully until we have submitted to God, yielding to his authority. The power to resist comes from the grace that gets poured out as we humble ourselves under God's word. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That word, draw near, uh, it, it is, it, the, the Bible says that when we give in to the lusts of this world and act in opposition to God, James actually tells us in the first chapter that we get drawn away and enticed. We get drawn away from the Lord and enticed by the flesh. And so because we've been drawn away from, by our sinful desires, we have to make the choice again to draw near to God, to leave that behind. That's what repentance is. It means a change of direction. It means I was going this way, and I changed my mind, and I'm going back. I'm drawing near to God again. That's the prodigal. The father, I love this story, the father is at home. He doesn't chase after the prodigal. How many people have prodigal sons and, or daughters, and you're chasing after them? trying to get them to do the right thing. I love that God just said, go. The father, the picture of God, the father, he lets him in the pig pen. And the Bible says that one day he comes to himself and he decides to head back home to the father. And I, I love this, the story because the father didn't go to the pig pen after him, but he's waiting. And he's there when he sees the son coming. He runs to greet him. It's the only place in the whole Bible that you see God in a hurry. It's to welcome a prodigal back home. And if you're here tonight and you've been wandering away from God and you've been slopping in the pig pen, can I just tell you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He is waiting with arms wide open to welcome you back home. And, and the Bible says that when the son made the decision to draw near, to come back home to the father, the father... He pours out blessing. Get the fatted calf, bring the ring, bring the robe, put sandals on his feet. Oh, he's so glad to have him. See, that's what happens. <laughs> when we've been indulging in the lusts of this world and we make the decision to draw nigh to God again and head back, the blessing, the God's enabling power, the grace just gets poured and poured and poured and he gives more grace. That's just redundant, more grace. <laughs> More grace to the humble. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? By cleansing our, our hands, purifying our hearts, getting rid of the double mind, by lamenting and mourning and weeping, repenting. That word cleanse, it's a picture of the Old Testament priests who before they came into the presence of God, would cleanse their hands in the laver. Do you know what the laver was made out of? 
Somebody, come on. You've heard me preach too much. What was it? What, was the, what did they melt down to use that? Mirrors. The women's mirrors. Oh, that's so good. That's such a preach right there. Because what would have happened when the priest, because they were mirrors, and then the labors made out of those mirrors, when he leaned down to wash his hands, what's he seeing? Reflection. You see, you won't cleanse what you haven't seen reflected. If you refuse to look at your heart, if you refuse to look at your sin, if you just always want to point the finger, you will never cleanse. You will never cleanse until you get an accurate reflection. And the Bible says that the Word of God is a mirror. When we go to the Word of God, I always say to Davy, you don't have to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. The Lord will get me in the mirror in the morning. When I open up His Word, He'll say, hey, Rhea, catch a glimpse of that. And I'll wash and I'll deal with the dirt that I see in his presence. He says, you're double-minded. That's part of your problem. James in James 1, 8 said, he talked about us being double-minded. And he said, when we're double-minded, we're unstable in all that we do. That word unstable means that which cannot be restrained. You see, when, when I'm vacillating between God's way and the world's way, the flesh and the spirit, I am double-minded, and that means I'm going to be unstable. See, some of your lives are really full of chaos right now. Some of your lives are a mess right now. Kendall is doing organic chem, and when she deals with, with um, chemicals that are unstable, what happens? They can blow up in no time. Mm -hmm. Anger and fighting. Blow up, no time, unstable, because you're vacillating. You're double-minded, unstable in all that you do. Just draw near. Deal with the double-mindedness. Just deal with the double-mindedness. Fall under his authority. Don't resist him anymore. That word unstable, it's the negative of to set in order. In other words, I'm refusing for my life to be set in order as long as I'm double-minded. I'm going to be out of order and full of chaos. A double-minded man is one part of us that wants to follow God and the other part wants to live to please ourselves and do our own thing. And that will always produce chaos and every evil work. The Bible says that the, the, um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It'll always lead us astray. James finishes this chapter by talking about how life is just a vapor. And how we want to make plans and we want to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be successful here and I'm going to go here this day and there the next. And, and yet we have no regard that our life is like a vapor. And, and, what we, and that was the other reason I read it out of, out of James, out of the voice tonight. Let me just close with this. I just loved it. He says, your current speech indicates an arrogance that does not acknowledge the one who controls the universe. And this kind of big top talking is the epitome of evil. So if you know the right way to live and ignore it, 
It's sin, plain and simple. What James is saying by telling us that our life is a vapor and he's reminding us, he's reminding us that God holds our life in his hands. That the all-powerful, all-knowing God, the creator of this universe, that we forget that he is in authority and that he is the supreme authority and we refuse to humble ourselves under his word, his word that's always right, his word that is loving and kind and it's always for our best interest, his word that works because it's truth and it is the way to live because it always leads to life and yet we resist it and we oppose it and we want to do the things that the world wants to do and yet the world is under the rule of the enemy why do we do that? Because we want what we want to fulfill our selfish desires. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. We don't want any conflict. We don't want any garbage. We don't want to deal with any pain. We don't want to have to, to die to self. We, we don't want somebody else to have something better over us. We don't want to have to forgive. We don't want any of that. And so we resist his word. And then we feel his opposition and the lack of grace to walk out the life he's put in front of us. Good stuff. Good stuff. 